This is M.I.P. With Masamela Mafumo. Mark Thompson. Get woke. I've had the great fortune over the last five plus years to work with the Congresswoman Barbara Lee. Uh, she called me on the phone in 2018. Uh, and I tell this story because it's funny to me, so it should be funny to you. Uh, but it had like a 202 number. I live in LA, and so I'm like, 202? This seemed like student loan, you know, <laughs> the IRS, like, I don't know about this call. And so then the spirit said, Marcus, answer the phone. And so I answered the phone, and it was Deputy Chief Liz Lee at the time, and she said, is this Professor Marcus Hunter? I was like, uh, I think so. And she said, I have Congressman Barbara Lee on the phone for you. Are you available? I was like, OMG. And so basically, uh, Congresswoman Lee said to me, she had been working on uh, trying to get America to, to do the right thing around systemic uh, racism by doing a Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation Commission. Most people are familiar with it as uh, truth reconciliation, uh, most notably out of South Africa, uh, Rwanda, and Germany. And she said, I really want this to happen in our federal government. Are you available to participate? And I said, I'll be on the first thing smoking. And that time I got to meet Dr. Gail Christopher, who is the coiner and visionary behind the rebrand of Truth and Reconciliation into Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation. And she's here today, you'll hear from her as well. Over these years, we've been in Zoom University working together, working across uh, different policies from the John Lewis Voting Rights Act to the George Floyd Policing Reform Bill to HR 40, Truth, Racial Healing, Transformation, Third Reconstruction. As you can see, RAP Act, I can just go down. And one thing I think we all recognize is that it's really hard to sustain that energy just as an individual advocacy group. And part of what happens oftentimes is we don't get a chance to talk to each other, nor do we get a chance to demonstrate that we're actually unified on these issues. And fortunately, we're in a time where we have a US president administration that has made racial equity a key pillar of their administration, very historic. And thus far, we've gotten Stop Asian Hate and Juneteenth. And we want more. There's unfinished business. Today, through the leadership of Congresswoman Barbara Lee, we are all gathered today to hear about a unified slate of racial equity legislation that has not yet had its time in the sun. We're here together as advocates and as members and leaders to demonstrate that we are unified on this. And hopefully today, those who join us can help join our cause, co-sponsor, speak to your member, your office, get them to join these very important acts. And as you know, today is called H from HR 40 to the RAP Act. I'll be your MC for the day, but without further ado, it is my great pleasure to give it to California District 12's leader, the Congresswoman Barbara Lee. Well, thank you very much, Marcus. Good morning. Thank all of you for being here. It is such an important day. It's such an important alliance, coalition, uh, people power that all of you are bringing to this issue of, of racial equity and racial justice, and yeah, racial freedom too. But Marcus, let me tell you, the reason I called you, and you, you, you know how I met you? I was watching the news on television on a, a, some talk show, oh, right. and I said, this brother got it. <laughs> and I only watch the news, right? So it was a major uh, news show that he was on, and so that's how I tracked you down. Oh. I just want you to know. Look at that. Thank you. That's Shout how. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
So, Dr. Christensen, thank, thank you so much for your leadership and your voice and, and being the wind beneath the, the wings beneath the wind on, on this movement. It's so good to see you. And also uh, to the members of the National Black Justice Coalition, United by Equity, Black Music Action Coalition, uh, U.S. Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation Movement, and why we can't wait. And yeah, why we can't wait. You know, elections are next year, so why we can't wait. We got to move this fast, okay? Uh, the National Reparations Coalition, all of you who are here today, uh, thank you for your dedication to this movement because this is, this is the civil rights movement of our time. It is. And so we can't wait. Uh, and I want to acknowledge all of our colleagues who have been part of this. Uh, of course, Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee, who leads on H.R. 40, um, the Commission to Study and Develop Reparation Proposals for African Americans Act. Um, she couldn't be here today. I know her staff is here, but you know she's doing another job right now <laughs> in, in Texas. And also to um, our representative Corey Bush and Jamie Raskin and Jamal Bowman and Senator Booker and all of the members of Congress who um, are affiliated, even if they're not here today, with uh, this entire movement and uh, helping big time on it. Uh, and uh, I have to take a moment to give a shout out to my state, California. We were, I think, the first state to establish our task force on reparations, right? Wasn't easy, and now the implementation's not easy, but we're moving forward. And recently, um, there was a conference on reparations. I don't know if anyone was able to make it in Ghana. Were you there? Good to see you. Our Secretary of State, uh, Shirley Weber, was there, and she led on the reparations task force when she was in the California legislature. So I have to um, just say how proud I am of my state because it, it ain't easy in California, let me tell you. <laughs> Um, let me start by saying that every piece of legislation that we are discussing today, it really reflects a commitment to justice, to equality, and the pursuit of a better future for everyone. And that means everyone, full stop. Make no mistake, every challenge that we face today, from health disparities uh, laid bare by and seen by the COVID-19 pandemic, to economic inequality and poverty, to environmental racism, to criminal justice issues, the, the racism and disparities in criminal justice uh, reform can be traced back to 400 years of a systemic government-sanctioned racism, government-sanctioned policies and laws of the United States government. So this history underscores the moral imperative of a truth commission. And so that's why I introduced H. Conrez 44, urging the establishment of a United States Commission on Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation. And I know in the beginning when we started discussing this, um, we talked about transformation versus reconciliation. And uh, of course, I concluded that, um, and I think we all did, that there's nothing to reconcile. <laughs> so it's transformation. Transformation is reparations. In the time when um, our country grapples with the painful legacy of racial injustice, this resolution seeks to establish a commission dedicated to uncovering the truth, fostering racial healing, because you can't heal until you know and accept the truth, period, dot, dot. Uh, and then driving transformative change, recognizing and acknowledging our history is the first step 
toward um, building a more just, that this is the first step in building a more just and inclusive uh, society. By creating a space for dialogue and understanding, the Truth Commission aims to bridge the gaps that divide us and pave the way for a united and harmonious future. Now, as Truth Commissions are established worldwide, let me tell you, we have, and, and your tax dollars pay for and fund the United States Institute for Peace. Their job <laughs> is to establish truth commissions around the world, <laughs> okay? That's what we fund, but yet they don't have the money and the authority to establish one here in the United States. So that's something I'm still dealing with legislatively. We've got to figure that out because that means that um, our government has accepted the notion of these commissions. If we're funding them abroad after genocides and crimes against humanity and slavery, why in the heck don't we just fund one here and establish one here in the United States? The hypocrisy of it all is really very glaring to me. The need for our own in the United States is very apparent, and so we know that more work must be done to achieve true racial equity in our communities and in this country. So all of these legislative efforts will educate and inform the public about the historical context of the current racial inequities that we witness each day, usher in this moment of truth, which every country in the world has to have after such uh, atrocities, and take necessary steps toward rooting out systemic racism in our institutions. Only then will we be able to uh, repair the damage and the past harm and build a more just nation for every individual. And let me just share one small story with you. Um, I, I come from a great progressive, enlightened congressional district, which includes Oakland and Berkeley, California. During the COVID pandemic, many of my enlightened white progressive friends called me and said, Barbara, why are so many black and brown people dying disproportionately of COVID? We don't understand this. Then they said, and then before that, why did uh, Mr. Floyd get killed like he did? And we saw this on television. They had no clue about the, the trajectory <laughs> from the Middle Passage and enslavement to today. And I had to educate them, okay? I had to explain that, the, the, trans, the trauma, first of all, but also the systemic kind of inequality and racism and disparities and injustice that's transferred down through the decades and the centuries. They didn't understand that. So if my constituents didn't understand that, and I say they're the most enlightened constituency in the country, then I know the rest of the country, they don't get it. <laughs> And so that's why a truth commission is so important. It's important so that facts can be laid out and so that the country can come to grips with its past. This is the Sankofa moment in the Ghanaian language. You know, in order to move forward, right? In order to be able to learn from your mistakes, in order to be able to put in context where we're going, you have to look back to move forward. And that's the Sankofa moment that, that we're talking about. Finally, let me just say, uh, and Marcus mentioned H. Res. 532, Third Reconstruction. I'm working with Bishop Barber and the Poor People's Campaign on this because we know that black people, brown people are disproportionately impacted and have disproportionate rates of poverty, right? 
Uh, we have a lot of poor people in this country, but disproportionately black and brown folks. So we fully address poverty and low wages from the bottom up. This bill addresses uh, the persistent challenges of poverty and low wages that many Americans face daily. A prosperous nation uh, is one where everyone has the opportunity not only to uh, survive, but to thrive. The resolution calls for a comprehensive approach to tackle poverty and low wages, advocating for policies that uplift the most vulnerable among us. And by addressing these issues from the bottom up, we can build a more resilient and equitable society where everyone has a chance to achieve their full potential. So the establishment of the Truth Commission and the commitment to addressing poverty and low wages, the commitment to address, addressing racial equity and reparations is this next front that we have to wage. This is a fight we're in that we have got to win for the survival and the thriving of everyone who has been disproportionately impacted by the legacy, the horrific legacy of um, many say the original sin of America. So thank you all again very much for being here and thank you for your work and really good to see you. Great pleasure to follow up uh, Congresswoman Barbara Lee with uh, New York 16th District uh, hero, the principal, uh, Congressman James uh, Jamal Bowman. Give it up for him, please. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. The principal, I like that. We got to keep that going. Let's get that trending. Uh, that's right, absolutely. Uh, thank you all uh, so much for being here. Thank you for your continued work uh, in this space. Uh, shout out to Dryzen Heath for inviting me to speak. Really appreciate you. Let's give her a round of applause, please, for her work. I'm going to do something unusual because, uh, you know, this brother didn't know I was going to do this. But I want to do this because this bill that I'm going to talk about today, uh, I've been working with this brother from the very beginning in building this bill out. So I want him to come up here and stand with me as we talk about this bill. This is my brother, Prophet, from the Black Music Action Coalition, BMAC. I need Prophet to come on up and stand right next to me with the black hoodie in the shades, looking exactly like a rapper, looking like one of the rappers we talk about. Absolutely. Stay on this side, bro. Stay on. Come on, man. Come on, man. I need them to see you, man. I need them to see you. Anyway, so first and foremost, every single bill that we introduce and consider in Congress should be rooted in racial equity and racial justice. That's right. Every single bill. That's right. Full stop. The fact that that is not the case shows you how far we are away from reparative justice and repairing the harms of our country's history. And there's no way we can reach our full potential as a democracy, as a civil society, unless we repair the harm of our history. Mm. First, let's acknowledge it. Mm. Let's even acknowledge it first and foremost. Let's have a conversation about it, and then let's begin to heal. And then cut a couple checks. I think that, I think that should be a part of the conversation as well. So every bill should be considered through the ends of racial equity and racial justice. The bill I'm going to talk about today is something called the RAP Act. The RAP Act. RAP stands for Restoring Artist Protection. Because what we are seeing in the criminal justice system, by the way, as we all know, let me take a step back, mass incarceration 
is a part of the continued racial discrimination and oppression and enslavement of black people in America. Right. Yes? Yes. yes? Right? So that's clear as day. They found another angle, y'all, and this other angle is putting rappers and artists in jail because of their lyrics. Now, the Rap Act is not a get-out-of-jail-free car. That's right. But what we're saying is prosecutors have to do their jobs. Find evidence, quality evidence, to convict someone of the crime that you are charging them with. Do not bring in rap lyrics from five years ago that may have said something about something valid and equating that to the case right now so that you could put someone in jail. This is what's happening in our criminal justice system right now. And it's happened at least 500 times. Right. At least 500. Compared to other genres of music, a combined total of five times there's been the pursuit of incarcerating someone, all have been either dismissed or reversed on appeal. And as we know, the majority of rappers are what? African-American. And the ones who aren't are usually Latino. So this is obviously a racial justice issue. It's a continuation of harm and targeting of black and brown people through their art form mm. against the First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States, which is what? I'm a principal. We in school. It's an assembly. What's the First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States? Freedom of speech. Against their freedom of speech. Now, when I say it's not a get-out-of-jail-free card, if you're a prosecutor and you want to pursue rap lyrics as part of your argument, bring it to judges and the defense before you bring it to a jury. Because if you bring it to the jury off the whim, you're already tapping into their racism right. and their implicit bias. And you are prejudic prejudicing the jury, which is not what we're supposed to do. So you want to use lyrics? Bring it up front. Let's, let the judge decide yay or nay, and the judge will decide how to use the lyrics. But that is not happening right now. Right now, we just found another excuse to throw brothers uh, in prison. Now, let me say this, in jail. Now, thank you. Shout out to California. They have already passed legislation supporting, you know, not using rap lyrics uh, in trials, at least not the way they've been used. New York State is about to follow suit, hopefully. Louisiana, I believe, has also passed legislation. So this is not just about federal legislation. This is about state-by-state -state work as well. So please encourage your state reps to support this sort of legislation in your states. Encourage your members of Congress to do the same. We are in the process of looking for a Senate lead to lead this bill. Wink, wink. Let's see who shows up today. Um, you know, feel free to ask him a few questions about that, not to put Brother Booker on the spot. Um, but that's what we're trying to do. And let me say one other thing. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for hip hop. I would not be a member of Congress if it weren't for hip hop. I would not have been a middle school principal who wrote a proposal and opened my own school that I ran for 10 and a half years if it weren't for hip hop. I wouldn't have been an effective educator if it weren't for hip hop. I wouldn't be an all right, semi-decent father and husband if it weren't for hip hop. I wouldn't be where I am, where I am today if it weren't for hip hop. The lyrics of these artists, the storytelling, their self-determination, their creativity, their innovation, their personification, their foreshadowing, 
their dramatization, helped me with my personal language development, and also helped me with my sense of self-esteem and self-worth and self-confidence. And this came from a group of individuals who were left to die and kill each other by our governments. The Bronx and inner cities continue to be underserved and underinvested from our governments. In the South Bronx, there was gangs running the streets, killing each other. They themselves came together to sign a peace treaty and said, let's stop killing each other on the streets. Let's figure out a way to do battle through the arts. So they literally resurrected or created hip-hop from the dust of the burning rubble in the Bronx and from the blood of men and women who died in street violence. That's right. They created it. No government came to create a form. They created it and manifested a culture and a social justice movement that is now one of the most powerful in the world. We cannot allow white supremacy in the form of state violence to throw these black and brown brothers in jail for their arts. We cannot allow it. And so please engage your members of Congress, engage members of the U.S. Senate and your state houses. We need all forms of reparations. Supporting the Rap Back is one of them. Thank you all so much. We're going to keep it going. Uh, so happy to have uh, next member here. Uh, he may not know this, but... Uh, I've been so excited that uh, Congressman uh, Jamie Raskin has been available. He was an early co-sponsor of the Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation Resolution and also of H.R. 40. He will also be speaking to us about H.R.E.S. 1932. We might have, by show of hands, how many people have heard of banning books? Yeah? He's here to tell you what he's doing about it. Can we give it up for Maryland's 8th District Congressman Jamie Raskin? Well, good morning, everybody, um, and good morning, uh, Congresswoman Lee, and thank you for convening us today. Um, the, um, the war on books, the war on literature, the war on libraries, um, the war on public schools and teachers is part of a global war today on memory, on historical memory. And that is a part of a push for authoritarianism, racism, anti-Semitism all over the world. Um, we've seen it in Hungary with their illiberal democracy where it's now a crime to talk about Hungarian participation and complicity in the crimes of the Nazis. We've seen the same sorts of laws in Poland, uh, in Russia now where uh, you can't even talk about the war taking place today in Ukraine in a critical way without being thrown um, into jail. But we've got our own domestic counterpart to that. In Florida, um, uh, slavery is now considered a, a mass apprenticeship program, uh, an internship program. They're taught, quote, slaves develop skills which in some instances can, could be applied for their personal interests and benefit. Um, 
that's part of the uh, official Florida uh, curriculum now. And we know that Governor DeSantis has been uh, the, a major captain um, in the war against historical memory related to racism, slavery, white supremacy, Jim Crow. Um, but we see even the same thing, that kind of historical revisionism taking place with respect to recent history, with respect to January 6th, where we have uh, colleagues who uh, are openly trying to blame the violent insurrection that took place on Antifa that began on January 6th itself, that they attempted to whitewash um, Donald Trump's uh, crimes against democracy and the involvement of the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, and other racist groups from the beginning. We've got a colleague, Representative uh, Clyde, uh, who said that January 6th was akin to a normal tourist visit, um, which would explain perhaps why American tourists are not very popular in a lot of parts of the world. Um, but um, the, uh, the assault on, on historical memory is an integral part of authoritarianism and uh, book banning and book burning, of course, have uh, the, a central place in the history of uh, fascist movements around the world. Well, um, here in America, um, Pan America has um, described a 33% increase in book banning just over the last year, attempts to ban books. There are 300 proposed state laws introduced since January 2021 that would directly target teaching about the history of uh, racism, slavery, and white supremacy, um, as well as gender in public schools. Um, and this um, attack is an organized right-wing attack. It is totally opposed to the sentiments of the vast majority of the American people who reject these ideas, and yet, um, the, this effort to ban books and to target the teaching of forbidden topics has succeeded in a whole bunch of school districts um, around the country, and a third of all the book bans target specifically questions of race and racism. So, uh, and you know the kinds of books that are targeted, Native Son, Black Boy, The Bluest Eye, along with uh, Handmaid's Tale, 1984, um, they inevitably go after the books that describe authoritarianism and censorship themselves, um, as well as books that discuss structural racism in people's experience of different kinds of discrimination, including homophobia and uh, misogyny and so on. Um, our uh, resolution, House Resolution 733, um, is all about the protection of the freedom of speech, the freedom to read, the freedom to write um, around the country, and it's got this important um, uh, anti-racist dimension to it, and I'm uh, grateful to Congresswoman Lee for pointing that out and teasing out how important the defense of civil liberties is to the defense of uh, people's civil rights. So thank you for including this in uh, the racial justice and racial equity agenda. Really quickly, I want to also just acknowledge all the congressional staff that is present. Thank you for taking time out of your very busy day to join us. Uh, we really, really appreciate you. want to also, uh, yes, please give it up. Yes. 
um, you make the room feel very full in addition to it being full. Thank you so much. And also there is a sign-up sheet going around. Please make sure that you put your information there and pass it down to the next person, sort of like the collection plate for the building fund. You know? um, without any further ado, it gives me great pleasure uh, from Missouri's number one district, the number one congresswoman from Missouri, the congresswoman, Cori Bush. Y'all missing the shoes up here. <laughs> Good um, morning, afternoon, or whatever. Um, thank you all. So I don't know. Yeah, we don't know. Um, thank you all so much for being here. I'm glad to see the room uh, as full as it is uh, because of what we're talking about today. I speak to you today as one of only around 188 black representatives to ever serve in an institution where over 1,700 members of Congress who enslaved black people have held office inside of a building built by our ancestors who were enslaved to uplift the reparations now resolution. This historic legislation declares that the United States has a moral and a legal obligation to provide reparations for the enslavement of people of African descent and its lasting harm on the lives of millions of black people. Black people in this country, we cannot wait any longer for our government to address the extraordinary harm it caused, it caused since its founding and continues to perpetuate each and every day. Let us speak this truth, uncomfortable as it may be for some. Our country was not founded on the principle that all people are created equal. And as a matter of fact, it says all men, but I'll skip past that. It was founded at the expense of the lives, the freedom, and the well-being of black people whose enslavement whose exploitation and dehumanization were written directly into the Constitution. Slavery and discrimination are not a minor or an insignificant part of this country's history or development. They are embedded within it. Consider this. The U.S. economy was founded on the production of crops planted, harvested, and produced by enslaved black people. By 1831, the United States was delivering nearly half of the world's raw cotton crop as a result of chattel slavery. In 1861 alone, the value placed on cotton produced by enslaved black people was $250 million, or more than $8 billion today. And you should say, ooh. <laughs> All of this happened not in spite of our federal government, but because of it. Ten of the first 12 presidents of these here United States enslaved black people. President James K. Polk traded enslaved black people at the White House. There have been 1,500 more enslavers of black people in Congress than black people who have served as members of Congress. 
The Supreme Court's Dred Scott decision holding that black people could not be U.S. citizens was decided by a majority that included five slaveholding judges. This is not just a matter of our country's long distant past. It's a matter for which the United States of America must provide reparations if we are to ever achieve a prosperous future for all. We know that we continue to live under slavery's vestiges. We know how slavery was perpetuated by Jim Crow. We know how slavery's impacts live on today. And I wanna throw some love to those that are doing the work, even right now in Tulsa, as we uplift and we help that work. When we think about from the black white wealth gap to voter suppression, to segregation and redlining, to disparities in infant mortality rates and other healthcare outcomes, those disparities are not the natural consequences of human society. Uh -uh. They are directly caused by our federal government's role in the enslavement and exploitation of black people from the very foundation of this country. This legacy can never be studied. It can never be talked or apologized away. Only concrete action can begin the process of repair. We need reparations now. That's why I introduced House Resolution 414. My reparations now legislation, it calls for at least $14 trillion in financial reparations. And let me put an emphasis on at least. That's just the bear. That just barely bottom, just, just scrapes the bottom. Because let's talk about this. Um, this number that's determined by respected economists such as we want to shout out Sandy Darity and Thomas Kramer, Jason Hinkle for their work on this. This number has only increased though in recent months. Enslaved Africans labored for over 222 million collective hours between the years of 1619 and 1865. So those 222 million hours that they, that they uh, 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 labored currently totals to a value of over $97 trillion. Hmm. And that's a discount, really. Reparations are not new. I find it appalling that in 1862, enslavers in D.C. were compensated by the federal government. Not the enslaved, but they were compensated. The in, those enslavers were compensated for up to $300 for each person that they had enslaved for their perceived economic hardship when they freed them. Restitution and compensation are long overdue and necessary to ensure non-repetition for past and ongoing harms. We are owed reparations and we need reparations now. Our calls for reparations, they do not exist in a vacuum though, and so I wanna highlight that. We need reparations now, we need full reparations, and we need to stop worrying about how, what the government is gonna think about it, what the federal government, what the state government says. We need reparations for black folks in this country now, and we won't do it in a vacuum. We're gonna do it as we complement and enhance longstanding efforts like H.R. 40, you know, that was led by Congress, Congressman Conyers, and today by Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee, but we also work to enact other repertory justice legislation like Congresswoman Barbara Lee's uh, legislation urging the establishment of a commission for truth, racial, racial healing and transformation. And like my brother said, 
we must support the artistic expression of predominantly black hip hop uh, and rap artists exemplified by the rap act led by Congressman Bowman. The push to erase black history in every single form, in every single way, all of our cultural narratives from K-12, K-12 institutions must be combated, like with the legislation that we heard from Congressman Raskin, recognizing Banned Books Week. These policies collectively support and defend black livelihood every single day, and I unequivocally support all of the legislation, but again, it can't be studied away, it can't be apologized away. Give us reparations now. Thank you. We like to say the doors of the church are open. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and so what I want to do right now is invite uh, Congresswoman Sheila Jackson. Lee was unable to be here, but Crystal Littlejohn is here, uh, who is her legislative director. I also see Bronson in the back. Yeah, so I want to invite the two of you up. If you just want to say a couple of words to folks about HR 40. Um, again, this is always about increasing co-sponsorship by informing and educating uh, members. So Crystal, if you want to come up. Let's give it up for Crystal, please. Come on, Bronson. <laughs> well, no, I just want to say good morning and thank you all for being here. Uh, you know, obviously the Congresswoman, she wishes she could be here and sends her, her regrets. As you know, this has been a long-standing issue for her that she has fought for. Uh, and, and picked up the torch uh, from Mr. Conyers and really did some redesigning, uh, reevaluation, reintroduction of the, the bill, HR 40. And it really is a very important bill that I think it's, it's worth people taking the time. If you haven't read the actual text of the bill, I encourage you to go through and read through the bill. Uh, it is an important uh, contextual history of why reparations are important, but it also helps dispel a lot of the uh, misinformation, questions about what HR 40 will do. Uh, this is a team effort. This is a collective effort. I see so many familiar faces in here that have been working on this issue for so long, and it's important that we continue to work together. There are so many different ways and ideas of thinking about reparations, uh, but it's important to understand that the commission is an, essentially a formalization of all those ideas, all those questions, all those issues uh, that tug and war leave that to the commission and let them sort that out and come up with those recommendations so that we can truly see what that will look like. And I think it's also important to remind you uh, that there are generations that are coming after us. And I, I had the, the honor of having a room full of middle school kids in the Congresswoman's office a few weeks ago, and their debate topic was reparations. These next generations are thinking about these questions, the pros, the cons, what does it look like? And so it's important that we continue to educate them and to uh, instill that, that motivation, that creativity, uh, but also that push to make sure that we see that it be realized within our lifetime, if not ours for theirs, because they are thinking about this too. And so it's, it's not only for us, it's for them, but also making sure that we dispel all the misinformation about there. We get calls all the time about uh, HR 40 and asking what it does. Again, go back and read the text. It's really important to understand that it does outline the importance of what the commission will do and why it's important to have that commission. And so I do thank all of you for being here today. Thank you for allowing me to say a few words on behalf of the Congresswoman's uh, uh, inability to be here. Uh, but if you have any questions, my name is Crystal Williams. Uh, my name and contact. 
It's okay. <laughs> uh, it is on the, the handout that, that went around, so if you have any questions, you can follow up with me as well, as well as uh, her Deputy Chief of Staff, Bronson Woods, who is in the back. Uh, you can reach out to him as well. Thank you all. I did want to point out a couple of things just to uh, reiterate what we've heard so far. Uh, yeah. Sure, yeah. Uh, one thing that I think is really important, this is a simple thing. I mentioned everyone, I'm a professor by day. Uh, and so I focus a lot on words. I like to think of myself as an etymologist. And I think it's really interesting that we spend a lot of our history focused on equality, which is important. But the word equality, you cannot spell it without the word equity. And so I think it's really interesting, it's taken us this long and the death of Breonna Taylor and the death of George Floyd to really start speaking about the fundamental word that makes equality possible. Because really equality just means equity for all. So how are we talking about equality if we don't have equity? And so part of what we're trying to do here for everyone in the room is help you see that when you hear words like reparations, despite the steady diet of misinformation, confusion, and divisiveness, that actually it's about equity. And when you get equity for all, then you have equality. And there are different ways of thinking about how reparations can come together, whether it's about protecting artistic freedom, what I would call intellectual reparations. That didn't cost us anything. You didn't hear any dollar signs attached to that. No checks were being cut, but millions of people are being protected on your radio that you listen to every day. Reparations now is an extension and expansion of our ongoing efforts around HR 40. We want a study commission, but we also want the reparations now. While I'm doing this, I want to make sure I honor and respect and mention the leaders and advocates who are in the room. Uh, Dreesen Heath, who's in the back, if we want to give it up for Dreesen, who leads the Why We Can't Wait campaign and has done yield woman's work on HR 40, reparations now, and just in honor of her love of people, black people in particular. And shout out to Wesleyan University, which is where she went, and New Haven, Connecticut, where she lived. You know, so I just know all that. I used to be a professor at Yale, so just know New Haven. I want to uh, honor Dr. Gail Christopher. Uh, Dr. Christopher, you just want to raise your hand so everybody can see you here. Dr. Christopher was the senior VP at Kellogg, where she helped them understand how to understand truth, racial healing, and transformation in these United States. She studied over 40 countries that did this work. She did the strengths and weaknesses of that work and helped bring us here today with a new framework that helps to address the American condition and move us forward through healing and transformation. I want to ask Dr. Paul Zeitz to stand, please, and be recognized. Dr. Paul Zeitz has done many things in the US government, but one thing he has always done for us is get us activated, get us energized, and he helps lead up the US Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation movement. I would like to ask Reverend Adam Taylor to stand up, please. Reverend, Reverend Adam Taylor Lee Sojourn is the nation's foremost faith-based organization. He has been on the ground floor of this effort with us. And I'm doing this intentionally. So for all of the congressional folks in the room, please find these people. They have so much information and they're a wealth of knowledge on all of these things. Please give a forever Adam, Adam Taylor. <laughs> the stalwart known as Lisa Sharon Harper. If you might stand for us, please, so we can see you and recognize you. Lisa Sharon Harper has been leading on this issue as well. And last year, she held a joint press 
conference at the National Press Club that brought us together in the very first time. I like to think what we're doing today is an extension of what she started. Can we give it up for Lisa, please? I would like to ask Prophet if you could stand again. We know we saw you, but we want to see you again. Prophet, yes. Prophet leads the Black Music Action Coalition, a collaboration and conspiracy of 250 of the industry, music industry's most powerful black music executives, artists, and managers. They helped us put PSAs together to get the word out. He has been on the ground floor doing this. He helped birth the RAP Act, which we heard Congressman Bowman mention. And he is just an all-around important prophet for people. So I just want to make sure you're honored and recognized. Ann Haggard, can you stand up, please? Ann Haggard, breathe with me. Breathe With Me was one of our foundational partners to help create the PSA that went viral. We're now at 50 million views. Shout out to Kiki Palmer, Beyonce, Alicia Keys, Mary J. Blige. I'm naming these people because they're in our stuff. Check us out. Right? Uh, if I can get Dr. David Johns to stand up, please. Dr. David Johns is the executive director of National Black Justice Coalition. He's been all up and down the hill. He's been helping us on our congressional strategy. He worked especially for uh, uh, Senator Kennedy, uh, RIP, and also the President uh, Barack Obama as well. And so he is a wealth of information and knowledge. And Kichi Taifa, if you might stand up for us. She's a longtime stalwart at HR 40 and Cobra. And lastly, I believe, VKY, if you don't mind, join us in the back. VKY, policy director for the National Black Justice Coalition and just all around bad, bad woman. <laughs> so these are the people in the room. And in your two-pager, we are all listed there. Please do reach out to us. We're so happy to answer questions or help guide or even meet with the member or with the full staff to give any further information. While we await the center, I will open up to ask if there are any questions that people have while we're here together. Yeah, and please raise your hand if you don't have a two-pager. Yes. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So two pagers if you have your hands up just so we can make sure you get it. Very welcome. And the other thing you'll notice that's a part of the packet. I'll take that away, thank you. There's a QR code here uh, for Equity March, June 15, 2024. We have it here on the easel. You should have that going around. It has a QR code where you can go and get more information. But basically, the, the idea is this. After all of these years of toiling separately and together, I realized that uh, we haven't had an opportunity, especially after being pandemic, panini and wrapped around in a panorama of disease and death, that we haven't had a chance to actually have a mass demonstration on equity. We've had a lot of talk about it. And fortunately, we do have a presidential administration that says they want to do it. And so the idea is to bring together people in a different experience. I'm calling it not your granddaddy's march. So we're going to gather at the foot of the Lincoln Memorial and we're going to assemble and we're going to march a little over a mile to Black Lives Matter Plaza, 
will be met by Live Nation, some entertainment, and some speakers that help bring us all together on this issue during a very important primary and national election season. And the idea really is that you have the traditional demonstration of a march meeting with a music festival. So a lot of the young folks know what a music festival is. They don't mind gathering together for Coachella or for Rolling Loud, but they definitely don't have an experience of seeing that match with questions of equity, which we know are impacting their life. So we'll meet at the foot of the Lincoln Memorial, and uh, one thing that people know is that there's the reflecting pool that's at the memorial. And maybe I'm alone, but I've been feeling like we've been reflecting for 60 plus years. You know, <laughs> reflection is good. I was an English high school teacher before I became a college professor. You want to reflect all the time. But at some point, you have to move forward. And after you reflect, the idea is to move forward towards Black Lives Matter Plaza forward into a conversation that is adjacent and nearby the White House to say that we are all of unified idea about equity. We all thought that, especially in 2020, just so many distractions, so many divisive issues, so much global turmoil going on. And I often think just in the words of the legendary sociologist, raise your hand if you've heard of him before, Tupac Shakur. <laughs> they got money for wars, but can't feed the poor. I mean, that's what we're living. I live in Los Angeles. It's deep. But I think we all agree. And so our idea is to come together, all of us, the proponents you met today, all of the legislation, and maybe we can start talking about getting some omnibus equity action. Maybe a little bit of everything versus nothing at all. This is what we're trying to plant seeds for today. Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. As always, perform an act of kindness on behalf of an elder or young person. Write a letter to a sister or brother who just so happens to find her or himself incarcerated. Offer libations to the ancestors upon whose sturdy shoulders we all now stand. And above all, give thanks to the God of your understanding by whatever name you call her and him. All God asks of us is that we give each other love. Thanks for giving MIP love. And please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star rating. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been made plain.